0: Able and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 as we uh, return to the Gospel of Luke, the series that we have been in for a little over a year now. This morning we'll be looking at verses 10 through uh, 17. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God And cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside. To find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Thus far, God's holy word. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your word to us. And may we crave it as newborn babes crave the milk that nourishes them. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our bread from heaven. And may you nourish us as you feed us from your word. We pray this in His name. Amen. One of the worst attacks the church has ever received came from within the church itself. This should not be any surprise to us. Jesus told us to beware of false prophets that would come in sheep's clothing. And Paul told the Ephesian elders that fierce wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. Perhaps the fiercest wolves that the church has ever seen came out of 19th century German liberalism. For 1900 years, the church had, by and large, confessed the absolute authority of God's word. But liberalism questioned this authority and all the doctrine that it espoused. With the questioning of Scripture came the questioning of the miracles of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul, when speaking of a certain liberal theologian, wrote, Rudolf Bultmann, a neoliberal of our own day, has stated that the 20th century person cannot listen to the radio and make use of other modern electronic gadgets and utilize contemporary forms of medicine. And still believe in a world that is inhabited by demons and angels and miracles and that sort of thing. They just don't fit in the modern worldview. End quote. Some liberals will tell you that the miracle in our passage this morning was no miracle at all. Jesus simply went through the crowd and had people distribute what food they had with them. The real miracle, the liberals would say, is that Jesus convinced the people to share what they had with one another. I've even read liberals who have also claimed that Jesus simply had a multitude of baskets filled with fish and bread hidden in a cave somewhere. He and the disciples pulled a fast one on the crowds, making them believe He had performed a miracle. Well, we have scientists, engineers, and medical doctors in this very room this morning who don't seem to have a problem with a world in which a supernatural, miraculous feeding of 5,000 people exists. So the problem, I think, is not so much with the miracles of Scripture, but with their worldview. It doesn't seem to me to be such a contradiction to live in a highly technological world, yet believe that the Creator God of the universe can enter into time and space and miraculously create more fish and bread, should He please to do so. He created them in the first place. So what is the problem with Him miraculously multiplying them in this story. Well, that is in fact uh, what we will learn in this story is that the creator god of the universe performed a miracle so great that only god himself could do it. This text teaches us that Jesus is god the son who provides for us all of our needs this in turn teaches us that we are to look to him above any other for all of our needs. We're going to break this passage down into three sections this morning. The first section is the background. The second section, man's need. And the third section, God's provision. Let's begin with the background to this miracle. Well, when we last looked at the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had sent the twelve apostles out on the mission field of Galilee, attempting to make a vast sweep of the region as they proclaimed the kingdom of God and healed. Our passage this morning begins by informing us that after they concluded their mission sweep through Galilee, they returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done. The verb in in this verse is dia gesanto, which means to tell, to fully relay, or to give an account. In essence, they returned to Christ and gave a report of what happened on their missions trip. Now, this was a redemptive, historically unique time. In those days, the church was basically made up of Jesus, the apostles, and any other disciples that followed him. However, in this verse, we do find an exemplar for the church today and in every age. Just as Jesus called and ordained and sent men out to proclaim his gospel... And just as these men returned and reported all that they had done on their missions trip, so too men today should be called, ordained, and sent, and then periodically return and report their activity. This is done, of course, through the church. We have examples of this in Luke's second book. For example, in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit and called to be sent out to proclaim the gospel beyond the borders of Syria. And in verse 3 of that 13th chapter, we read, Then after fasting and praying, they, that is the church at Antioch, laid their hands on them and sent them off. In other words, they were formally ordained and sent out by the church at Antioch. Then, when they concluded their trip, chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, tells us, They sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Paul, of course, is. Sent on two other major missionary journeys, and each time returns with a report of all that God had done in his ministry. You can read about uh, these events in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, and then in verse 33, and verse 40, also in chapter 18, verse 22, and chapter 21, verse 19. You see, there is a connection between the church and Preaching, teaching, and missions. The church calls, ordains, and sends men. And these men should always give a report to the church of what God has done in their ministries. But we must always recognize that Christ is still the authority behind it. Just as he was in our text this morning. When an ambassador is appointed and sent, he must always return and report to that authority. Well, Christ is that authority. Ultimately, it is Christ the Lord by His Spirit who calls, ordains, and sends men. The church merely confirms these processes. And that's why we speak about an inward and an outward calling. The inward calling of a man to ministry comes from the Spirit. It is a calling that comes from within, by the Spirit. The outward call is the church's work of confirming that call. It is a process of recognizing the gifts and confirming the calling that the man has been given by the Lord. Understanding it, And operating in this manner is the only way to recognize Christ as the king and head of the church. Christ runs the church by his spirit through his ordained servants. That is how it is to be done today. It is how it was done in the apostolic age. And we have it modeled for us here in our passage this morning. And so we are told that the apostles returned and told Jesus about their missionary journeys. But as we continue the background to this miracle, we learn another important lesson about ministry. See, as soon as the apostles returned to Jesus, he took them to Bethsaida to withdraw from the crowds. In other words, to withdraw from ministry. Ministers need rest from their ministries. Pastors and elders need sabbaticals. And missionaries need furloughs. In fact, we all need rest from our vocations. Each one of us has a calling. Some of us are called to work directly for the church. Others are called to work for the Lord as engineers or doctors or lawyers or or educators, so on and so forth. We all have a calling. and We all need rest from it that is precisely why God gave us the Lord's Day. One day out of seven for us to rest from our worldly obligations and to gather together in the activity of worshiping Him. Well, the Lord knew that His twelve apostles needed a brief furlough from their ministries. And so He took them and withdrew to a town called Bethsaida. Well, the problem was that because of the popularity of Jesus' and the apostles' ministry, when the people of Capernaum learned that they were crossing over to Bethsaida, they quickly headed to the north side of the Galilean lake to be with them. And so their furlough was interrupted by the crowds. The text does seem to indicate that they, they did have a brief respite, Because it took the crowd some time to learn the whereabouts of Christ and the apostles. But their rest was certainly cut short. And Jesus, always having compassion upon the crowds, did not turn them away. But instead welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And cured those who had need of healing. Well, here is where the problem of this passage sets in. With a massive crowd pressing in on Jesus, out in a desolate place comes a human need. The people needed to eat. Luke records the apostles coming to Jesus and telling him to send the crowd away, to go into the surrounding villages and countryside, to find lodging and get provisions, for we are in a desolate place what is striking here is that the apostles are not only telling Jesus what to do, but they fail to consider that the one who has performed so many miracles before their very eyes might provide for the people himself. R. Kent Hughes writes, How like us they were. We remain dull to Christ and his ways, though He has provided for us a thousand times. Jesus does a miracle for us, and yet not much later we find ourselves in a tight spot. And not only do we think God is not adequate for our needs, but we have the cheek to try and tell Him what to do. If only we could keep the vast sufficiency of Christ before us. May God deliver us from our soul's sinful amnesia. End quote. There was a human need. The people were hungry. And Jesus aimed to remedy it. But before he supernaturally provided, he first turned to the apostles and said, you give them something to eat. It's as if Jesus was giving the apostles uh, a licensure. Or ordination exam. How would they handle this situation? There was a need involved with their ministry. And he told them to minister to the people's needs. They after all were the ones who had noticed the need. And perhaps they told Jesus to send the people away. Because they were ready to get back to their furlough. Maybe they weren't so interested in the people's need as they were their own need at the moment. Which is understandable, yet still sinful. But Jesus turned the tables on them and emphatically told them, You, there's emphasis in that you, you give them something to eat. Maybe Jesus would have given them the power to miraculously provide for the people. He had just given them authority to heal and to cast out demons on their mission trip that they had returned from. Perhaps he would have given them the power to do another miracle. But maybe Jesus was trying to show them their inadequacies in ministry. And that they needed to rely upon him. Maybe he wanted them to know that God always provides what is needed in ministry. Well, I think they certainly saw their inadequacies. For they said to him, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. You can almost hear them laughing as they respond. Unless we are to go and buy food for all of these people. In John's gospel, we are told that Philip responded by saying, 200 denarii. That's that's about eight months worth of wages. 200 denarii would uh, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. The apostles knew that this need was beyond their capabilities. And it must have certainly taught them to depend upon the provision of the Lord. Which brings us. Then to God's provision. This miracle shows us that what is impossible with man is possible with God. The apostles were at the end of their resources rope. They could not provide the people with food, and they couldn't even comprehend a way for the people to be fed. They did not even consider that Jesus had the resources to provide for them. And so when they confessed their inability, Jesus told them, Have them, that is the crowd, sit down in groups of about 50 each. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish, which John in his gospel tells us came from a little boy. And he took those loaves and those fish and he blessed the food broke the bread and divided the pieces of fish and continued to miraculously create more and more bread and fish as he broke them. Jesus provided for 5,000 men that day, which does not even count the women and children that were there. There could have easily been over 15,000 people That Jesus miraculously provided for that day. And not just for them. But the story tells us. That there were 12 basketfuls left over. God provides abundantly. Those 12 basketfuls were not wasted. They they would have been used. Our Lord would not be wasteful in that manner. But it was to show that God will abundantly provide for our needs. Especially in times... Of ministry. This is certainly one of the greatest miracles that Jesus ever performed. In fact, it's it's one of only two miracles that all four Gospels record. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record for us the resurrection and the feeding of the 5,000. And this makes it difficult for the liberals to discredit this miracle. They, they seem to squirm a bit when it comes to this miracle because it is so well attested by four different sources all prevent, uh, presenting the event with, with the exact same details. Well, it seems easy to me, as it should to any true believer, just to admit that Christ miraculously fed 5,000 people that day the detrimental mistake that liberals make is believing that Christianity is not first and foremost about the supernatural but about ethics for them the person and work of Jesus Christ was not important what was important was simply his teaching but beloved that is not Christianity That is nothing more than moralism. Jesus' teachings are important and they do certainly contain ethical commands, but they are first and foremost teachings about who he is and what he accomplishes. I think this is illustrated in the third catechism question and answer that we read this morning. It asks, What do the scriptures principally teach? And the answer given is, The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of men. The order here is important. First, the scriptures are responsible to teach what we are to believe about God. And second, what our duty is to God. Doctrine first, duty second. And the latter flows out of the former. How we live flows directly out of who God is and what He has accomplished. And This can be seen from last week's and this week's passages. In verse 9 of last week's passage, we read about Herod who inquired about Jesus and he asked, Who is this about whom I hear such things? In our present passage looks to answer that question. Who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh, who supernaturally provides for His people. That is the main point of this passage. Not how we all ought to share our food with one another. That's not even a point at all. Jesus is God in the flesh who supernaturally provides for his people. And we see that in this passage because Jesus is able to provide for the crowds what the the apostles were incapable of providing. There's actually a little bit more to it than just that. This passage paints Christ as the second and greater Moses. Moses. Notice in verse 12 that the apostles recommend to Jesus that He send the crowd into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions. Why? Because they were in a desolate place. The word for desolate in in Greek is eremos, which is actually better translated desert or wilderness. Does the wilderness, as the setting of this passage, bring to mind any event in the Old Testament? Of course it does. When God, through Moses, led his people out of Egypt and he brought them into the wilderness. But the wilderness, being a desolate place, is not suited to supply people with provisions that are necessary for survival. And so when the people complained of their hunger and their fear of dying in the wilderness, what did God do? He rained down manna from heaven. Bread from heaven. In like manner, here is Jesus with a large group of people that are deprived of food in the wilderness. See, Jesus here... And throughout the Gospel of Luke is being presented as a deliverer like Moses. And here specifically, as a deliverer who brings his people out of bondage and provides for his people. He's bringing his people out of bondage. That's why he proclaimed the kingdom of God. By proclaiming the kingdom of God, he was proclaiming liberty. Liberty. For the captives and the setting free of those who were in bondage. He is a second Moses. He is a deliverer. But he is even greater than Moses. For Moses did not provide them manna from heaven. It was God himself who provided them the manna. So that the people would know, as Exodus 16.6 says... That it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Here in Luke chapter 9. It is Jesus himself. Who miraculously provides the bread for the people. So that they will know that he is the Lord. Who will deliver and provide for them. He is the second and greater Moses. Because he is the Lord In the flesh. And I think the people picked up on this notion as well. We don't see it in Luke's gospel, but in John's gospel, we are told that after this miracle, the people began speaking to Jesus about the manna that was given to Israel in the wilderness. Beginning in John chapter 6, verse 30, we read, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And how did Jesus respond? It says. Truly, truly. I say to you. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The depths of what this miracle teaches us about the Lord is absolutely amazing. We see not only that Christ is God the Son by virtue of accomplishing what no mere man could accomplish... We see not only that he is the second and greater Moses by miraculously providing bread for them in the wilderness, as happened at the Exodus. But we also see that Christ himself is the bread from heaven. The miraculous provision was to show them that just as you need this bread to physically live, so you need me to spiritually live just as the bread gives you physical life so i give you spiritual life beloved liberalism is not christianity because it does not believe christ To be our bread from heaven that provides us spiritual life, life to the abundance. It really goes beyond just the spiritual life, even to the physical, especially represented in our resurrection body that we will receive someday when the Lord returns. They do not believe that Christ is our bread from heaven that provides a spiritual life through his very life and death and resurrection. In fact, liberals do not even believe that Christ's death on the cross made atonement for our sins because they do not believe that we need atonement for our sins. They do not believe that he supernaturally rose physically from the grave. Yet Paul says that if he has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. To the liberal, Jesus' life was simply an ethical example that we all ought to follow. But Jesus is our bread from heaven because he came down and lived and did the will of the Father for us. Because he atoned for our sins at His death on the cross. And because He rose as the first fruits of those who believe. You see, liberals have no good news. They simply have a book filled with ethical commands. If you want life, true life, then you must believe on Christ our Deliverer. You must repent of your sins and believe. Now, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Scripture does have ethical commands. But these commands flow out of who God is and what He has accomplished. So what does this passage teach us about how we should respond to Christ and His accomplishments? Well, We've already mentioned repenting and believing. But it also teaches us that we are to depend upon God for all that we need. We are not to lean on our own works, whether physical or spiritual, but upon the works of Christ. He has provided for us and will continue to provide for us in all of the needs that we have. And when we begin to depend upon the Lord and the Lord alone for these things, our life is changed. It eases our worries and anxieties. It causes us to appreciate and to give thanks for the provisions of God. It causes us to drop any legalistic tendency to lean upon our own works for salvation. It changes us. In so many ways. But it also teaches us. To follow God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. Tells us that God. Let the people hunger. And he fed them with manna. So that they would. Know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word. That comes. From the mouth of the Lord. So too. In sending His Son. Our true bread from heaven. He has given us true bread from heaven. So that we will know that we do not live by physical bread alone. But by being obedient to Christ's very word. He has the words of eternal life. And we are to believe in those words. And live out. Those words, knowing that until Christ leads us into the promised land and out of the wilderness, he will provide for every need that we have. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing for our greatest need by giving us Jesus Christ. Our true bread from heaven. Lord, we thank You for providing Him for us. His life, death, and resurrection. That we might have the forgiveness of sins. That you mo- we might be redeemed from the bondage of our sins. Lord, as this truth is so common to us, we oftentimes don't think how all the ways this changes us. When we think about all of the complexities of being redeemed, Lord, it changes us in so many ways. We pray, Lord, that You will open our eyes to how You have changed our lives. That You will cause us to Depend upon you and upon you alone. Help us to do our work. Help us to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh by your Spirit. And let us cling to you for all of our needs. And we pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's respond this morning to the preaching of the Word.